You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Hooray! Delicious Volume 1, Life Tastes Good, is finally at Amazon United States. What is delicious, you ask? Imagine a land where all your favorite foods live as human girls. Here in charming a la carte, under the floating city of heavenly delight, we meet Ramen, a young cook trying to run a restaurant with her family of pastas as they end up in all sorts of wacky adventures and hijinks as these strong, eccentric characters pursue their dreams and passions. Delicious is a beautifully drawn comedy series which is now finally available to buy in the United States. Click on the banner on one of us, order today and join in the fun now because Delicious Volume 2, Yum 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 is coming really soon. A perfect gift for your child or those of you who are forever young at heart. One of us strongly recommends this one. You know, in the wake of Avatar The Way of Waters coming out, the world feels distinctly changed. I feel like it's weird we're even talking about other movies, John Golson, because, I mean, who cares about any other movies, right? That's I, what game changers do. They change the game. They they told us. The that, game has been changed. They, the, Jimmy Jim Cam Cam, uh, as we call him now, has said, been very clear that this is the ultimate movie. No other movies matter, except to a lesser extent, Avatar 1. And so I guess that's it for Digital Noise. I guess this is the last episode. Well, you know, don't speak too soon because he's got it plotted out through six and seven. So there's at least seven more years worth of uh, available material. <laughs> if you do one show a year. What are we supposed to do between then? Look look back at the movies of the past and weep. At what what was what once was at how shitty they were compared to how the magnificence and the perfection of Avatar: The Way of Water. Yeah, we, I think like um, like some of the stuff we've watched recently at close range, like how much better would at close range have been had it been done with mocap? Yeah, and the Navi in it instead yeah. of like the actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's true of every movie. I was just rewatching Casablanca the other day. I was like, imagine how much better it would be if it was Sam Worthington going. You know, here's looking at you, kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In case you can't Lauren tell. Lauren Bacall takes off on the back of a gigantic dinosaur bird. <laughs> exactly. Instead of a plane. Yeah. <laughs> um, In case you can't tell, we're being a little flippant here. But uh, you can always listen to our Avatar uh, The Way of Water review if you want to hear me, at least, be extremely flippant. <laughs> but I, I was the guy who was like... Eh, it's fine. Uh, it was funny because Wright was like, I love it. He was the target audience. And yeah. I was the guy who was like, eh. and our other guy was like, kind of between us. <laughs> I saw 20 minutes of it. Yeah. And you know, it's a 20, it's a solid 20. Yeah. I don't Not- know what to, I don't know what to say. I think, I think that 
from some of the reviews, and I, I not to get too far into it, I was talking to my girlfriend as we were going into the screening, and I said, I think from the responses to the sequel, I'll, all I can think is, I think people forgot that the first Avatar was actually pretty good. And so people were wildly overreacting to part two, just based on short memories and not think, not remembering that like, oh, the first one's solid. Mm-hmm. And so, but the first one's been such a joke and such a punchline for so long that going into the second one, it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Right. And it, it may not be that much better than one. It just, it's just relying like, on people's, uh, you know, short memories yeah. of things. Like, you know, we're going to go through this whole thing again, right? It's just going to cycle and people will be cynical about the next one, but then it'll be, have some new level of tech on it and people will go like, oh my God, but the movie will probably be like two is to one, pretty much the same movie, just with the characters switched around a little bit. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can't. I all I've seen is the first one, so I, well, that's all I know. That's fair enough. Well, we're not reviewing Avatar. That's not being re-released. I'm not sure what else they. I, I guess they could. Then go this is through. the show, right? You, we're closing out. You can follow me on Instagram, Nick Olson. <laughs> no, no. Like I said, flippancy. Uh, we are going to go into a whole stack of movies. John, Go- Sir John, John Golson and I. Uh, hello. Hi. Are going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff and some really good stuff on the list this week. I thought it was a solid stack overall. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that surprised me the most how much I enjoyed it, not because it's from Arrow, because Arrow so regularly puts out good stuff, but this was one I was like, you know what? I'll try one or maybe two of these four movies. And if I really can't stand it, I'll just go, okay, well, that's a loss. We're not going to, I'm not going to make John watch it, but it's called Gothica, Gothic Fantastico, uh, for Italian. Uh, tales of, of terror. Now, of course, Italian cinema is very well known for being into horror and stuff. Uh, Mario Bava really sort of like was the front runner of like, okay, making them extremely gothic with his movies, starting with 1957's I, uh, I Vampiri. But I didn't really know that there was this whole sort of, I mean, like, I know all the, the big guys like Argento and Lamberta Bava, his son, and what, and, um, uh, what's Lucio Fulci. I know the guys who are overt horror guys or giallo guys. I really didn't know almost anything about this continuing culture of like the sort of gothic thrillers that were going on there as well. And now, John Golson, I gotta tell you, I kind of am a fan. (laughs) Yeah. So out of the set, there was one of them that I legit loved. And then, a couple of them I liked, and one of them that just wasn't for me, but I could see other people digging. Yeah. I think there's four movies, right? But they're, they're all interesting. But all of them were good. Yeah, they were all kind of like the Italian version of those, um, like the Corman Poe movies. Yeah. So, you know, if you're thinking about that, like, if you're wondering, like, you need a better frame of reference, I would but say like, it's closer to something like, almost like those. But like, crossed with, I don't know, something like a twisty mystery. They have a little Hitchcockian elements to them a little bit. They all take strange turns, like unexpected, like really, like, wait, what turns in them that you're like, okay, yeah, like before, like, oh, this is really well shot and everyone's beautiful and it's really cool, but then it does the, they'll do the weirdest shit and you're like, wow, that's really cool. But uh, we'll start out with the first one, Massimo Popillo's Lady Morgan's Vengeance, um, which was, I believe, one of the, the ones that were sort of higher touted in the set. There are two in the set I think are the, the best and this is probably one of them right here. Um, which is very House of Usher-ish, sort of. Yeah. Um, the, the first half is about uh. the marriage of Lady Susan Blackhouse, played by Barbara Nelly, to Lord Her- Harold Morgan, played by Paul, Paul Muller. Uh, but um, her 
beau that she, the man she really wanted to marry was murdered by Lord Harold ahead of time. And Lord Harold ended up with her, but turns out he just wants to gaslight her into collecting her inheritance. And he's got a super hot housekeeper who's like a complete sadist there. And like everyone in this movie is super everyone hot. Is super everyone hot. is so hot in this movie. But like the movie halfway through goes to what would be the end of any other movie and then goes to this whole like, oh, okay, so well, the, the character you thought was dead isn't really dead. And the character that is dead is like, yeah, yeah, I'm dead, but I'm going to help you. <laughs> like, this is crazy. I, I loved the shit out of this. This was shot really well. You know, very stark black and white, high contrast photography. The women in it are beautiful. It never quite, uh, it, it was not quite as lively as I wanted it to be, but this was one of the ones that I enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, this I would rank this in the set. I would rank this as my number two pick in the in the set of four. I would too. Uh, the second one is the Blancheville Monster by Alberto Di Martino, uh, which is kind of the same movie, but all the elements are mixed or everything's happening at a different speed in it. Really, where it's a, a beautiful young woman is gaslit with the use of mesmerism to the brink of death, and uh, and th- there's a, a cloaked horrible looking guy who's who's chasing her around and a family curse that says this family is doomed should their firstborn daughter this woman reach the age of 21 it's it's not as good as the other one but it's like all the elements are there but they're still they're remixed in a way that there's different surprises in it you know that keep you guessing so i'm like okay like of the two, I would pick the first one, but this is still well worth watching. Yeah, it was. This one's a little bit more uh, schlocky than the other one. Mm-hmm. Than the other ones in general, it's a little. It's a little more schlocky. Yeah. Um, it it is brisk. Like things keep happening, um, but it's just a little. It doesn't have the polish of some of the others in the set. Again, it feels a little cheaper around the edges, but it was still enjoyable. Uh, I, yeah, I would put this... This was probably, like, my number three out of the four. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, uh, my number four is The Third Eye, which is the first of two right, modern-day ones. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's kind of take on Psycho. It's like a mother-obsessed young man who's really into taxidermy. Oh, the acting. Oh, the acting. It, yeah. <laughs> it's not the strongest thing. Even though it's, like, um, the... Uh, the lead character is Franco Nero, mm-hmm. you know, who's never... Who's, I didn't even put that together. Who's more known for his grizzled good looks than for any... Than weeping? Pa- particularly <laughs> high skill for drama, I would say. Not, not a skilled on-screen weeper, Chris. No. Um, he wants the approval of his mother for a marriage uh, to this woman, but she doesn't want to give it to him. Um, there's also a housemaid who wants to find a way to get him for herself, and then... Uh, the housemaid starts set like basically setting up the deaths of everybody in the family, and I, it was all right. It was corny and it has necrophilia stuff in it that's kind of squeaky and not necessarily a good way. Well, I mean, like yeah, you know that's that like, movie that has necrophilia, kind of necrophilia in a good way. Yeah. It's not like necromantic too. Yeah. <laughs> you know when the dead body loves you back. <laughs> uh, it was just okay. It was like it's still like okay, this is weird enough that I'm enjoying it to some extent, but yeah. like it doesn't really all work. And what- it's the least artful of the four. Yeah. It's, it's, it, the other ones, even like the one that we just mentioned, the, uh, what's the monster, the whatever monster, uh, Blancheville, the Blancheville yeah. monster. Um, 
even that one, as schlocky as it is, is still there's still like a degree of elegance to it. Agreed. This one is not really. This is like straight up B movie. But there's no, there's not really uh, any elegance to it. Yeah. It's it's psychosexual schlock. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, but it's it doesn't have the elegance and polish of the other films. No, on the set. It's one of those like if you just watched it by by itself, you'd be like, oh, here's a weird little hidden gem. Like yeah. you'd be like, oh yeah, it's definitely worth watching. It's not like a. I'll keep coming back to this. But I'll tell you, John, I might keep coming back to the fourth film in the set that I would buy individually, which is uh, Damiano Damiani's, that's the name, The Witch, which has absolutely nothing to do with the 80 other films called The Witch, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is, again, modern day, loosely based on a novella, which is follows this womanizer Sergio played by Richard Johnson who is like you know has a, a fiance and and what have you in the beginning of the film but then he discovers a wanted ad that seems like it's set just for him because it's to catalog a library owned by this uh, attractive older woman Consuelo played by Sarah Ferrati who lives in this crumbling castle tower but right in the middle of fucking like downtown like italy right it's like it's like a skyscraper crumbling tower in the middle of like everything uh and he's like oh okay this is crazy library and we don't even know everything that's in it and it's like falling apart but there's like stuff in here it's like wow he might find some real like you know un- works that no one's ever even found before and he's he's excited about that but he ends up being even more excited after he m- meets uh consuela's daughter aura rosanna she off i don't know rosanna and and she is super hot she's just startlingly hot and seems right off the bat to kind of like him and he's interesting because he is both sort of like kind of very aggressive and assertive but also like will immediately be like ah when presented with like like choices (laughs) situations um and it's, there's this, I don't know, it has a weird sort of like dreamlike quality to it of like, is all this, not in one of those sense of the movie where at the end the shocker is like, oh, he dreamed the whole thing, but I mean like, like a reoccurring situation type thing. I, I don't know. I thought this was really beautiful. It was a really beautiful shot. It's a gorgeous set. Everybody in it is just unbelievably good looking and they're all good actors too yeah everybody's good in this and i I, this is the first film i watched because it was called the witch and i was like this sounds like you know straight up horror i'll watch that it's not this is again very hitchcockian in its way but i i was totally taken with this yeah there's like a he wants her to leave the castle and she won't leave the castle she can't leave the castle and this other lover is like living in the castle (laughs) yeah that he that, that Johnson discovers this other guy who's like, yeah, you're going to end up as obsessed as me. Like, I'm super obsessed with, with this situation, and you're going to be just as obsessed with me. And at some point, not far into it, I think you can you get a sense of where it's all going. You get a sense of where it's all headed. Uh, but it's one of those movies that it's like, even knowing where it's going or feeling pretty confident where... You're sort of like telling yourself, oh, I, I can feel where this is inevitably going to end up. It's one of those movies where sometimes when you feel that, it lets the air out of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then occasionally you'll see something where it's like it actually kind of excites you a little bit. Like, <laughs> okay, all right, let's get there. Let's get there. And then when it gets there, you're like, it pays off. Like, it feels mm-hmm. good and it feels right. You know what I mean? Yeah, and the ending nails it. Yeah. I was like, oh, what a great ending. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it brings you all to where you 
start to suspect in the third act it's going, but aren't exactly sure how it's going to get there. Mm-hmm. And it does it so in a neat sort of late period Hitchcock sort of like hallucinatory stylistic sort of way, you know, like with the stuff he was doing with Vertigo and things. Yeah. It's like, this is super neato and more people should know about this movie. It's really, really good. Yeah, it but is good. again, if your one way of discovering it is getting the set, I think it's totally worth owning this whole set. And mm-hmm. it comes with shit tons of bonus features. Every movie has a lot of extras and my favorite type of extra where it's uh, thematic essays about gothic uh, cinema in Italy on the whole, but using these films for touchstones where they're discussing sort of like, why was this a thing in Italy? And, you know, what were, how these films were examples of it and other films by the same directors. I love that kind of thing. I think it's a stronger showing. You know, you and I have reviewed the Giallo sets recently, and I think it's a stronger showing than some of the Giallo sets that we've reviewed. And oh, I realize I that agree. Giallo has like a, there's a hipness cachet that Giallo has where I think some of the film fans I know were probably more likely to blind buy something that said Giallo on the box. Agreed. And I think really, Arrow knows a, that too. <laughs> this is a stronger set of films. I agree. So yeah. as a consumer report here, I'm telling you, like this is these four films are of a higher quality than many of the Giallo boxes that we reviewed. That, that Arrow's been putting out. Yeah. yeah, I've only seen two of the three sets. Of they've got a red, a yellow, and a black. And I think I saw the red and yellow. Didn't yeah. see the black one. But um, yeah, I think as a whole, this is a better set than those. Certainly, and it, I don't know. It's really. It's a lot more fun than I would have thought it would be, given the title. Um, if you've never really gone into a whole rabbit hole of following on this subgenre of Italian horror, it's way worth going and checking it out. Because, like I said, if you like the, the twistiness of Hitchcock and the gothicness of the Corman Poe adaptations, then this might be like your dream new subgenre <laughs> to discover. Uh, we're going to move on to a Brian De Palma film. Man, there's been a lot of Brian De Palma re-releases recently. I've seen quite a few of them. And again, here I am seeing another one, which is uh, Dressed to Kill, now out on 4K. This originally came out in 1980. It was one of the early Brian De Palma films. Um, it was certainly, I would say, his first really big hit of a film. Like his other films got noticed, like Sisters was like, got a lot of indie art house note. Of course it was a horror movie and it was hard for a horror movie to do much more than that at that time. Um, and then, uh, Carrie. and Carrie. Yeah. But Brian De Palma wasn't the name people were thinking of when they thought of Carrie. It was Stephen King. They were yeah. thinking of this is the movie that made De Palma almost kind of a household name at that point in, in cinema circles. And it's, of course, very Hitchcockian in its way, but also very drenched in sex. Then if that you're not sure about that, it starts off with Angie Dickinson na- naked in a shower being raped by a mysterious masked intruder while her husband is right outside in the bathroom, just completely oblivious. It's a dream sequence, but it's an unfulfilled marriage with Angie Dickinson, who I guess at this point, from what I've read, was every sort of guy's fantasy who was at that point in their 30s or 40s. Like, she was on a show called Police Woman that was really big, but, like, dudes were into Angie Dickinson back then. Like, like she was the... She was the Ana de Armas of her day. <laughs> you know, we were like, damn, I dig me some Angie Dickinson. But she's not the main character. She's only much like a Hitchcock film. She's only in it for a little while. And then she's gone. And then our new star is Nancy Davis, who, uh, Nancy Allen, who worked with Brian De Palma on a number of movies, including recently we reviewed her in Blowout. Here she's playing a not dissimilar role. Uh, she's, <laughs> they're, 
prostitutes in both movies. She's smarter here. Yeah, she is but smarter yeah, her, here. Her body double character is smarter. But she witnesses uh, the murder of Angie Dickinson, and um, she's being followed up on uh, uh, with it here with with a uh, primary character who God, who was this playing the main character in this? Oh, um, Keith Gordon, and oh no, Dennis Dennis Franz, who's playing. To type a cop. <laughs> Seems weird when you look at that guy, you don't go, that's a guy who should play like a cop in every movie. <laughs> a more like Italian sub shop owner. <laughs> I think somebody, you see somebody once and then that becomes the role you're forever. It's like, uh, 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 Octavia Spencer uh-huh. playing nurses in like 47 different movies. Yeah. Somebody saw her once and was just like, oh, nurse. get that nurse lady. <laughs> yeah. Dennis Franz, get that cop guy. Uh, I I really like this, although there's probably stuff. There's definitely stuff in here that that has to do with transgenderism that uh, some people are going to go like that feels uncomfortable by today's standards. Um, but I don't think it's it's one of those like if you feel very uncomfortable about the killer in Silence of the Lambs being transgender, then you probably will feel the same way in this movie at certain aspects of it. But other than that, I don't think it's de- you it opens know. a whole can of worms because I don't think that the killer in I haven't read Silence of the Lambs, but at least in the context of the movie, I don't think that killer is transgender. Well, they Whereas say this one was dis- like explicitly. There's a discussion that like, oh, he's not in Silence of the Lambs. That is, I think, the most confusing part of the whole issue in there. It's like, no, he wants to be. He's just a failure at it, and that's. You know, I think that makes people more uncomfortable than a transgender person being a killer. I, I don't. I just don't remember Buff, Buffalo Bill. Yeah, he, I, he he wears women's clothes and does, makeup and stuff, and 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 tucks his penis between his legs and visualizes himself as a woman. But like, yeah, that's a central conceit that Anthony uh, Hopkins explains to Jodie Foster, and it. it's like, yes, he wants to be, but it frustrates him because he's failing at it. <laughs> yeah, this has a lot of the same stuff. Um, and then we and got- I, I don't think De Palma's trying to say anything. But sometimes Mm-mm. when you are not trying to say something, you end up saying something anyways by letting it lay. Agree. And I was not um, wholly comfortable with this movie's sort of armchair psychiatry of uh, trans identities. Mm-hmm. Um, because th- unlike Silence of the Lambs, they have like the Hitchcockian psycho style, let me break it all down for you and explain what what being transgender is Mm -hmm. and it's so weird um i don't know if that's necessarily what the medical view even of it at the time was it feels made up for the movie to to fit this killer story um this is also a movie with an infamous ending that i knew going it's a ending so famous that i knew going into the movie like what the twist was right i can't imagine how this would have played had i not known oh was this your first time it was my first time seeing it but it that I can't even remember. I mean, that this ending has been spoiled for years. Uh, okay, for me, I, so, I I hadn't heard a new. I didn't know what the ending was when I saw it for the first time, which I don't know, maybe eight years ago or something. And when it was a home release, it's one of those films I was always like, I should watch that at some point, and hadn't. And then they sent it for digital noise, and I was like, Oh, thank you, thank you, finally. Probably more impactful not 
knowing. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't so know how you, telegraphed it is. So if you don't know. It seems really telegraphed if you know. I mean, most of Brian De Palma's endings of his movies, I feel like, have some degree of a shock ending, a twist mm. ending. I mean, the most, I still think the most shocking is probably Blowout, which is like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I really went, I, I can't believe no one ever spoiled this for me. And I was like, uh, and I was just kind of left in shock afterwards for an hour or two going, Damn, I was emotionally kind of emotionally invested in that, and now I feel like <laughs> it's kind of fucked up the whole thing for me. Yeah. Uh, this one I didn't feel that way as much with, but it is sort of. It felt like a little bit more of a traditional twist ending, I would say. Um, but I don't know. Everybody is pretty good in this. I think Nancy Allen is better in this than she was in Blowout as well. Um, Michael Caine, we haven't even mentioned, is in here as a prominent psychologist in the movie. I think it's a it's a a good movie more for how wonderfully it's shot and it really is shot extremely well and a lot of the times that echoes Hitchcock but not always it, yeah. it's him it feels like taking his influences and trying to create something new um and uh, he didn't completely succeed it still feels more Hitchcockian than not but drenched in sex more than obviously Hitchcock ever did we talked about Blowout last time I was on <coughs> I found this more cohesive than Blowout mm-hmm. Um, as a whole, I found it just more, it was more consistent, uh, but I don't think it ever reaches the heights of that first hour of blowout. Cause I think that first hour of blowout is like five star brilliant. And then the rest of the movie is, is fine. Um, this was one I thought was like pretty good all the way through other than just, it is a, it is a product of its time. Oh yeah. Um, hundred percent. So it's very dated yeah. to be sure, but it looks great on 4k. <laughs> oh, and <coughs> be clear. It's catch in my throat. Sorry. In 2015 criterion put this out on Blu-ray after it was restored to 4k, but it wasn't a 4k release, which, you know, I know that may seem confusing if you don't follow yeah. di- like digital stuff a lot, but so it's as good as it could possibly look on Blu-ray, but not as good as it would look if you had a 4K TV to watch it in its full glory. Even then, it's a gauzy movie. It like varied. it's a very like uh, uh, like when they put shit on the lens and it makes lights start to a starburst. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, like, The light splits into like starburst it has, patterns. I, I call it everything a, is very gauzy. Looking. I always call it a Olin Mills haze. Yeah, you remember Olin Mills photography where yeah. they take your family Christmas pictures and they all had that sort of haze and the starburst light. It's a late 70s thing that was like very, very, very stylish for about four or five years and it yeah. shot that way. So even at it looking its best, it's still going to have this like milky kind of dreamy haziness. gauzy haziness to it but uh this is actually sourced from a brand new 4k master that was graded with dolby vision and hdr and it's actually a like i said it's a very very good one in in 4k um and as well the audio quality is terrific in here there's two standard audio tracks on this that are available uh uh, you know, I think this is a tremendously good release. There's a brand new audio commentary that's recorded by critic and author Maitland McDonough uh, that talks about a lot of uh, the controversy in the past, because this was considered quite shocking when it came out. Mm-hmm. I remember even as a kid, like, it being discussed on the news and shit. Like, should yeah. anyone, should this movie be rated X? You know, that sort of thing. Um and then the commentary goes a lot into, of course, the connection between Hitchcock and De Palma, which you could talk about for literally every film De Palma ever made in his career. 
Uh, that's also available on the Blu-ray version. There's a new program with Nancy Allen looking back and talking about this, her character, a new program with the associate producer and production manager, Fred C. Caruso, uh, an imitation of life, a new program with actor Keith Gordon, um, dressed in purple, dressed in white, lessons in filmmaking, sympathy of fear and making of dressed to cool kill are all archival documentaries from previous releases here as our, Oh God, there's just so much. There's just a shit of like, there's a shit ton of extra stuff in here that are older things, including promotional material. So it's Kino Lorber and they put together a criterion size. Yeah, I was just set. about to ask, who's is this? Cause I couldn't I, remember. It feels like it's, it's, there's so much new material in here and so much completionist in here that it feels like something from criterion or arrow, but it's not, it's Kino Lorber who is getting into the game very recently of like, since they've gone into 4K, they've been like, all right, let's start dressing this shit up with more. Yeah. Cause a lot of their releases, they look great, but there's just, they might have an audio commentary, but that's about it. Yeah. Right. Now they're starting to get into, okay, here's a bunch of shit. And they also uh, follow this with their new release of the usual suspects on 4K as well. Now I remember seeing this in the theater and it blew me away. Like I was just like, at the end, you're just like, back of your brain spewed out all over the seat. It's like, wow, what the fuck was that? I mean, it was a big deal when this came out to film junkies. It was, mm -hmm. I would argue it was just as big as Tarantino's reservoir dogs. When it came out, it was like a, who is this guy? Well, as it turns out, he's a dude who rapes underage uh, dudes on set, but sorry, <laughs> but yeah. we didn't know that at the time. Uh, and you know, as well as starring, a guy who rapes underage guys on set. Yeah, it's yeah. ground zero for <laughs> some of the worst of of the Me Too era. It's deeply uncomfortable with with uh, that ass with Brian's directed by Brian Singer. It's written by Christopher McQuarrie, who was a became a star in his own right after this, uh, doing all all sorts of great movies uh, afterwards. And as far as I know, there's no rape going on with Christopher McQuarrie, so we can still like him for that. And honestly, the star of this movie is him. The writing is so tight and twisty and wonderful. Um, and then, of course, Kevin Spacey plays the lead character slash narrator who's been pulled into a police officer's office, um, played by Chaz Palminteri. And the whole movie is sort of like him recounting the story of what happened in this interview uh, about like a massacre that took place on a boat where everybody else involved is, was dead, including lots of other people. He's like, OK, come on, tell me the real story about what happened. And you've got in there Stephen Baldwin, Gabriel Byrne, a very early role from Benicio del Toro. First time I ever saw him in anything. Uh, Kevin Pollack, Pete Postlewaite. And the Kevin Spacey's character, Verbal Kent, is is a handicapped man, and he's obviously considered by this group of people to be sort of like very very smart, but also the guy they all kind of like don't take that seriously. You know, he's the least of them, if you will. But the the guy who's bring them all together kind of is Gabriel Byrne, who everybody thinks has more going on than is really, including the the policeman in question, who's like. I'm convinced this guy is like this master ringleader because he's been a longtime criminal, but at least according to Verbal Kent, he was trying to reform himself. He had gotten, he, he gotten married to like a very prominent art dealer, uh, was trying to make it work in normal society and go completely straight. Chaz Palminteri is like, no, 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 I don't believe that. That guy's been a, that guy will never stop being a scumbag. And as the movie goes along, seems like he might have been even more than that. He might have been, in fact, this almost mythical figure. 
Kaiser Soze, whose name spoken in whispers among that criminals tell their children to misscare them and make them go to sleep, go to sleep at night and behave themselves, um, which in and of itself, that became such a catchphrase. Like Kaiser Soze became a thing that's like, I mean, that's as big as like, what's in the box or something, you know, of like, like, oh, everybody knows what that's from. If there you, was a time. Yeah. I feel like I, I, it's funny you bring that up specifically because on the drive over here, I was thinking about that and how if I went to somebody who was like 25 years old and I said, who is Kaiser Soze? I don't think they would know what movie I was referring to. I mean, and that's a versus, shame. Versus like, uh, what's in the box or Royale with cheese or, you I mean, know, to some extent that might be because, like I said, it's now deeply uncomfortable with the director and one of the main stars here being such terrible, terrible people. But I, this movie's still so worth watching. It was just a masterpiece crime thriller. It really, really was. Yeah. I mean, did yeah. you, did you feel that way? At a time when audiences were really hungry for that Tarantino style of like colorful gangsters. Yeah. Like colorful gangsters in the nineties were like as, like a box office draw. Like people would go see movies with colorful gangsters. And the thing about usual suspects is that we got a wave of really deeply terrible post Tarantino yeah. films where people would try to write like Tarantino. I mean, there were some okay ones, but there were a lot more. There's a lot ones. of crappy ones. Yeah. Um, and the thing with this is it being post Tarantino, but being um, its own thing. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is light and snappy and has interesting, colorful gangsters, and it has really crackling dialogue, but it's not postmodern like Tarantino is. It's not uh, It's not um, pro- as profane as Tarantino. It's doing no. its own thing while still providing something within that like ballpark if you're hungry for it. Yeah. Um, I've seen this movie like a ton of times. I, Me I, too. Yeah, same deal back in the day. Like it was, it, there was so much. I don't even, you know, it's funny. I don't even remember. How did we know when films were being buzzed about? Because I remember that film had a lot of buzz and then it opened and I was like, I'm going to go see freaking Usual Suspect. We, you know, cause and we I were, guess it's Premiere Magazines and like well, stuff yeah. like that. I used to just get like, Entertainment Weekly and Premiere Magazine and all that stuff. Plus, I was just like pa- always part of whatever the local film circle was yeah. in terms of like just the kid going, hey, what's going on? You know, yeah. <laughs> like I wanted to know. I wanted to get to know the like anyone, any local like indie video store. I knew everyone who worked there and would be part of that discussion. So it was like, yeah, everybody was talking about it who was interested in film I at just, all. I can't remember how I used to know about what movies were going to be like <laughs> hot, but I would go because I lived in a little small town and I would drive like hours to go see stuff. And this was one that I drove, you know, a couple hours. I drove from Crockett, Texas to Bryan College Station to see Usual Suspects on opening day. Um, yeah, it's really, it's, it's, really good uh it's it would be a bona fide classic if it wasn't ground zero for two of the most yeah predatory a-listers in hollywood history <laughs> like, it's just a real shame because it really is that great of a film that yeah it's like thanks for ruining this for us guys because yeah. you can't keep your dick in your pants uh Unfortunately, the transfer is not as great in this one. Um, I actually, everything I'm reading from sites that follow tech specs specifically are like, there's very little difference between the 4K and the Blu-ray transfer. The 4K is not a huge improvement over it. Um, but, uh, also as well, it's pretty much all, it's, it's largely archival stuff here, here, including audio commentaries recorded by, uh, editor composer John Ottman, by, um, Brian Singer and Christopher McQuarrie, uh, and then there is a new program called The Devil's in the Details with the cinematographer Newton Thomas Siegel talking about his aspect of being involved in this. 
I mean, there's lots of archival stuff here, but this is not as strong a release uh, by any stretch of the mean as uh, a stretch of, as uh, Dress to Kill was. Uh, it's still from Kino Lorber as well. And if you've never seen it, I mean, it's as good as the movie has looked. So well worth owning to be sure. Um, but yeah, I can't in good conscience straight up recommend anything that's sending money to either one of those two guys. <laughs> Um, we're moving back to Arrow again. We just t- tend to do a lot of going back and forth from Kino Lorber to Arrow. And honestly, this is the first film we're going to talk about this week that I was not crazy about at all. And I had never seen it. This is a movie that's been on my list for a long time because I'm a big horror fan. Uh, 1977's psychological horror film directed uh, by the great Robert Wise, who did the original movie The Haunting, which is a horror masterpiece, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but Audrey Rose, yeah, and starring a young Anthony Hopkins, and follows a New York City couple uh, who's a stranger comes, Anthony Hopkins, who's like, I'm pretty sure your daughter is the reincarnation of my dead daughter. And this was based on a book that was very popular at the time. And this weird period in the seventies that everybody was fucking obsessed with reincarnation. Like, like America got like on this whole thing where it's like, Oh, there's another big book called the reincarnation of Peter proud. That was a big deal at the time. And it was like one of those that featured in a lot of films at the time, but Hollywood didn't know what to do with it except make it scary. You know, and I think that's part of the problem with this movie is like, I didn't really know what to do with it. You're like, it feels like there's maybe a kind of feel good story in here somewhere, but it's not made that way. They try and make it scary and like, so she has memories from someone else's life and that's, that's it. That's the only thing that's supposed to scare us. Okay. And I just find this deeply dull. It's very boring. <laughs> Uh, take a drink every time Anthony Hopkins says, Audrey Rose, Audrey Rose, Audrey Rose, Audrey Rose, Audrey Rose. Um, that's what I remembered from when I saw it, which was back when I rented it from a Netflix disc from their mail order service way, way, way back in the day. The one thing that I took away from it was, I seem to remember him saying Audrey Rose a hell of a lot. Uh, and then watching it this time, it was like, oh yeah, he does. He, he repeats constantly. Audrey Rose. Um, it's, I can't believe no one's ever sampled that that I'm aware of for like a t- track somewhere. You know? It's uh, it's it's post Exorcist horror. It tries to be about this like upscale family um, living in like a townhouse in a big city, and like it has the feel of a studio going. We like Exorcist. Give us more of that. Yes. What other horror books are there? Oh, people like Audrey Rose. Let's make that one, and it feels. <laughs> Kind of, it one. It's not the story itself is not remotely like The Exorcist. I guess no. the thought of a little girl having somebody else inside of her head, maybe, but they can't get anything scary out of this. Well, At yeah. most, they get like histrionic. It's it's like it's it's there's more like, like scenes where she's like f- because Hopkins' little girl died in a horrible car accident. So when Audrey Rose relives the the girl's experience, I guess Audrey Rose is the name of the original little girl yeah. who dies in the car. I can't remember the name of the actual it child. doesn't matter. Anyways. <laughs> so when she relives Audrey Rose's experiences, she thinks she's in a flaming car. So she flails about and screams and throws herself everywhere in scenes that are just a hair shy of camp. Yeah. They're almost laughable. Like, yeah. like it's real close to being funny. And, some of it is just... And it the... screams, hey, do that Linda Blair thing. Yeah. Make her do that Linda Blair thing. People yeah. love that. And you're like, okay, but she's just... 
there's there's not an evil presence haunting her, so it's not as freaky, right? Yeah. She's like reliving the death of an innocent young girl, like, yeah. but not in a like. This is Samara coming. You even for have her. like Marsha Mason as like an Ellen Burstyn type. <laughs> yeah, it just feels very like yeah, like like cast from the same mold, but for box office success, it's it's just not interesting. No, like it's just. I say that, and like I realize the premise sounds really interesting. Yeah, I can guarantee you that as interesting as the premise sounds, that's as interesting as the movie ever gets. Just, that's just the, the log line is all that there is. This, like, oh, he he believes that that girl is his is his dead little girl, and then they can't really get anything else out of. Them. I mean, what would have been interesting here is if like that's not what's ha- or maybe there's something to that, but he's a complete psycho, and like it, the, there's a twist where he turns and like wants to kill the family for ritual bring his daughter back and you know whatever but there's not it's just like yeah he's guys like yeah that is my little girl and the movie's like yeah well why don't we pretty much is experts a little girl. and find out yeah, okay exactly. taking the experts oh this may be true okay and it's like uh, <laughs> and then it's like okay and like how do we end this thing oh um okay uh yeah we'll just do this and then you're like who left this movie feeling good about it <laughs> i'm always shocked that this is a thing that people still talk about as if it was good because it's not it's you know, I, it's it's got early '70s studio polish. Yeah. If you watched any, I think if you walked in the room while somebody else was watching this, you <laughs> might be like, "What is this? Oh, wow! Anthony Hopkins is really young. What is this You're movie? Like, Just watch is, is magic. This like the Exorcist. <laughs> watch magic yeah. instead. <laughs> and I think I think that it's one of those. If you just if you were just to catch a glimpse, you'd be intrigued. Uh, sitting through this whole thing is such a chore. Yeah. Anyways, I'm sorry. When I handed it to you, you like looked at it and looked up at me like, "Fuck you!" This audio commentary. There's a interview with a magician and escape art- artist <laughs> <laughs> who discusses reincarnation. You're like. Okay, that is a weird choice there. Um, there's a list of lo- tour of locations. There's an analysis from critic Lee Gambin who talks about how reincarnation has been presented in films. Um, Investigator, the paranormal world of Frank DeFolita, uh, which is a, a look with the interview of the writer of the original book. Uh, Marsha, a Marsha Mason interview from 2022. Interview with a film music historian talking about the work of the composer that's brand new. Poster and stills gallery again. These special features trying to frame this as like a docudrama. Like, yeah, like, like oh this... no no no, this could really happen. This could really happen to your child. So but... we've brought in reincarnation experts and filled the special features with reincarnation. Just, they did this that... is a cautionary tale. They it's did like that... an after school special. They did that same shit with the Poltergeist 4K release, where there's like, and it's an older uh, thing. I guess it must have been on like some previous release. I only had it on DVD. It wasn't on there. Yeah, uh, but it's like. Well, see, the thing is, this could happen. This sort of thing does happen. And I'm like, oh, my God, really? Who okayed this on here? <laughs> Just embarrassing. Anyway, we're going to move on to, hey, oh, my God, a new movie. That just came out in 2022. We actually played it at the theater. Avatar, The Way of Water. Not Avatar, The Way of Water. I'm sorry. You have to listen to that separate review, which is the Spanish film uh, The Good Boss, directed and written by Fernando Leon de Aranoa, who actually is is a big deal in Spain because he uh, has his first film, won the Goya Award for Best Director, and uh, now apparently he's tied with 
Pedro Almodovar for the most Goya awards for best director, which is the Spanish Oscars, which he won with his film Barrio with Mondays in the sun and now with the good boss. Uh, so he is considered like a movie comes out by him. It's like, okay, we should be considering it on that level, maybe worth checking out, but more so for us, you know, us Americans who don't know who that is. We're like, Oh wait, it's got Javier Bardem. I love that guy. We all love Javier Bardem. Mm-hmm. He he can be very, very creepy in things. He can be very, very sweet in things. Here, I really think that as interesting as the source material is, their big mistake is that they try too hard to make him gray instead of picking a making a choice. And I think ultimately that hurts this. I'm kind of shocked that this is described as a comedy because it's not really a comedy. There's some cynical laughs here, maybe. I mean, the idea is... Oh, and also, it received a record-breaking 20 nominations at the last Goya Awards and won six of them. Um, but uh, Javier Bardem plays Julio Blanco, who's a owner of a family-run factory that makes scales, but he's very, very successful. And... He has shit going on because an employee he let go is, like, actively protesting, like, literally just sitting outside his house, like, protesting, like, you know, you're going to – you're basically killing my family by doing this. Uh, and he – they try and present him, at least at first, in every other way, like, no, he's a good man. Everybody really, really respects him. But this was a hard decision to make to let this guy go. At first, you're like, okay, this feels like a portrait of somebody who's trying to be a balanced person. They have to make hard decisions sometimes, but – Everybody seems to love him and think he's a really great guy, including his family. But as it goes along, it becomes more and more clear he's not a particularly great person. But it's more like, well, A, he's only human and therefore flawed and makes big mistakes like everybody else does. But B, sort of into the whole, the more successful you are, the more likely you are to make mistakes that really hurt other people. And isn't there a whole thing about uh, where the somebody is going to come and like review or give an award to the plant that he runs. Yeah. And so his deal is he wants to get everything in tip top shape. Yes. But in doing so sets off a chain reaction of like, you'll reap what you sow. Like all the like shady crap that he's done or under the table stuff that he's done kind of dominoes when he starts to move pieces around to, make the company look better stuff starts to kind of fall or fall down around him Absolutely. i think that structure is it's the structure is like a farce so even if the movie isn't like a laugh out loud it doesn't comedy play it as one though but yeah. it doesn't play it as dark and serious either like there's something going on with it that's a little bit um there's a tonal thing that's like it's kind of got the tone of something lighter but you're right it's not going for laughs no, it's commentary, but I don't know. It kind of, there's something that I both admire and condemn about the fact that it just at the end sort of like stays so firmly with like, this guy's such a great character. It, it, it sort of hobbles the ability of the plot to do anything interesting in the third act. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where it's still like, okay, well, he's, he made some big mistakes. Like he like sleeps with like one of his, like a young intern that's in there. Not like, like pedophilia un- underage, but like, you know, college age. We had to, and, we had to clarify that because yeah, of Brian Singer. Because of Brian Singer. Uh, so you're like, but that's still creepy. He's like in his fifties or sixties right. and you're like, okay, that's not really okay. And I don't know, man. That's like, 
I just, the whole movie, I'm like, kept expecting it to go somewhere more interesting than it did. And maybe that's because of all the fanfare about how good it was. In the end, I was like, it is a good film. It's just the type of good film that you forget not that long after you finish watching it. Yeah, I would say that's true. He's He's got a good, uh, you know, he's a movie star. He gives a great central performance. He's commanding because he's a movie star. When he's on screen, you look at him and it's interesting to watch him do stuff. I, I, well, I, I listened to one critic say... Uh, He's plays the kind of guy that is a shady con man that is so charming. You, you kind of don't even mind that he's conning you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're right. I, I don't, I don't disagree that the movie ultimately is not, uh, wholly memorable. And that again, that, that odd, that odd tone of being, of feeling like a comedy while never, ever, ever going for anything funny or having any laughs is, is a weird place for a movie to live. Yeah. And it kind of lives there its whole runtime. Yeah. Um, yeah. I talked to people who loved this and I'm like, I full respect. Sure. If that's your type of thing yeah. for me, I just, I was hoping it was going to be more than what it ultimately ended up being. I mean, Hey, the, for Spanish speaking people, I guess it must've been much, much more appealing because like I said, a record breaking amount of nominations and awards, but for me, I'm like, yeah, it's worth seeing. If this sounds like your type of thing, then by all means, you, you won't be mad at it or or hate it. But at worst, you'll be like, okay, I'm glad I saw it, but what's next? Yeah. <laughs> um, there's only two extras here, is interview two interviews with Javier Bardem and the the director that are both online type things. Um, so and both of them pretty short. So it's not a lot of extra stuff here, but it's a relatively small release. Surprisingly, the only release of this film that was very much touted when it came out in art cinemas as a big deal when it was coming out. Um, and maybe it just didn't perform well here, which is why it got such a sort of small Blu-ray release. A Cohen film, I think, is the ones who put it out. But anyway, let's move on to one of those that is an older film that I've always heard about and never seen. Usually it's you doing this where you're like, oh, wow, yeah, first time seeing this. And I'm like, this is one I'm like... Man, I forgot about At Close Range. I remember it being a big deal back in the day, but I totally slipped my mind until it showed up in the mail. And I was like, what is this? And I just started being flooded with memories of 1986 when this came out. I was like, oh, yeah, a lot of people were excited about this. I had totally forgotten, which is weird because it's neo-noir, which is a genre I absolutely adore. And it stars Sean Penn and Christopher Walken. Uh, Mary Stewart Masterson, Chris Penn, David Strathon, Crispin Glover, Kiefer Sutherland, and Eileen Ryan, which is a hell of a cast, right? And here's the good news. There's always those movies like that. You're like, why didn't I remember this? And it turns out it's because they're not any good at all. This isn't one of those. <laughs> this is really good. I, I think. Um, but uh, actually, this was the first film I watched in this set, so I'm going to let you describe the plot of this one. Uh, Sean Penn is reunited with his father, who's played by Christopher Walken, and his father is a criminal. He's a hustler, uh, and he has his own little crew. Sean Penn um, joins his dad and starts to get uh, pulled into the orbit of this life of crime, um, because the dad has let someone in new to his, his trusted unit, the cracks start to show dad starts to get a little paranoid, starts to, uh, you know, loose lips, sink ships, starts to think that people are talking to other people about the stuff that they're doing and his paranoia gets the better of him and begins to lash out violently at all of those people that are within his orbit, including his own son, um, which, you know, 
obviously causes his son to kind of go, I don't know that this is, I don't know that this is the way that I want to live, which makes Christopher Walken even nuttier, which <laughs> bothers him even more because now it's like, but I let you into this world and you can't just, you can't just leave it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, you know, it's dark, um, sort of a, it's not quite a crime drama. It's a little bit more father and son, a little bit more relationship stuff. Yeah. A lot of it dealing with, uh, a walk and sort of unraveling because, uh, because his, his group has a new dynamic to it. Um, I think that's just it really. It's like, it sounds like it's going to be more like a, the twisty crime thriller aspect that's enticing, but it's not. It's the character interactions that really grab you into this and the extremely strong performances, especially from Walken and, and Sean Penn, mm. who shocker, right? Oh, did you know those guys are good actors? <laughs> Just letting you know. Did you buy him as, as Sean Penn's dad though? No, not necessarily, but, they, I th- they, but it doesn't matter. Age felt weird to me. Yeah. It didn't feel. It didn't feel like there was a big enough gap in age. I mean, that happens all the time. Yeah. Um, it didn't matter though. I was so drawn into like their interactions that I'm like, I quickly forget that that was like, yes, they don't look anything like each other either. (laughs) But, um, yeah, it's a solid, but I could really solid film, but like a lot of films of its type where you're like, oh, it's more about the performances than it is about the plot. It's been kind of sidelined and forgotten about over time, despite immensely strong reviews when it came out. Lots of awards that it won. Just one of those movies really, really, really worth seeing and enjoying, but be prepared that it may not be the thriller you're expecting. It also requires a little bit of the audience to draw their own conclusions and fill in their own blanks. Yeah. I think the movie in a... In most of its dealings, is not extremely specific. It's not extremely specific. For instance, what uh, what Christopher Walken's primary scam is. It's not extremely specific as to uh, you know, why the cracks start showing. A lot of stuff is inferred or implied. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if there were things where it's like I wanted more details. I wanted more details about that. Like I wanted more details about from the start, even from the start where it's like you get a sense that he, it never got specific about their background or his childhood, but it was sort of like at first you go, Oh, he doesn't know his dad at all. And then you get a sense that maybe he knew his dad, but it's not specific about it. So everything is like inferred or implied. Right. And the whole movie is kind of that way. Like there's a lot of stuff in character relationships and things where it's like, you kind of just have to fill in the gaps with the information that's provided. You don't, yeah. it doesn't, un, unlike other movies that would more explicitly spell this stuff out or have characters say it, um, it is not a movie that is very concerned with a lot of the specifics. And honestly, some of that left me wanting because I was, yeah. I, I was sort of not confused, but there was a lot of like, I felt, um, I kind of felt in the dark about some things while I was watching it. Um, it was really good though. Like I didn't, yeah. I, I, that's, I don't want that criticism to color the fact that I didn't think the movie was good. Like I do think the movie's good. Yeah. But I it's... just, I just am used to movies telling me this is what happened when Sean Penn was a kid. And this is, this is where Christopher Walken has been up to this point. And it was kind of like, it's just sort of you drop in and out of these people's lives and you kind of have to draw your own conclusions about what their histories are. You know, this feels a lot like a lot of the other Sean Penn entries in the 80s and the 90s, where it's like, 
this film that looks on the surface like it's going to be more of a thriller outright, but is actually more of an art house film. Jump mm-hmm. did a lot of those. <laughs> and th- this is another one where it really is that you're like, this is really, yeah, it's an art house film masquerading as a thriller. It, it's not it. There's points that are very, Whoa, Holy shit. But yeah. ultimately I think that if there's a reason to argue to see it, it's just for these performances. And it's directed by James Foley, who directed the really great, uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross, um, you know, one of the better adaptations by that writer. Um, I think that's a better movie than this is, but that's partially because that script is just absolutely gold. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, uh, there's not a lot of extra features here. There's audio commentary with the director, James Foley. There's an isolated score track. Um, this actually all, so there was this company called Twilight Time that was around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And apparently, there was a complicated thing of them going out of business a couple of years ago. And then what was going to deal with all the rights that they had to films for so long. And a new company came in and bought them. But then apparently there were still issues. And apparently just recently, a lot of the rights to stuff Twilight Time had been holding on to for a long time just came up. So this is one of the films from that collection that was like, oh, now everybody else can re-release it if they want. Uh, you, we should be seeing actually a slew of new films coming up soon because they had a huge amount of rights they had been holding on to for quite and a while. And didn't they release stuff weird? Didn't they do like limited runs where yeah. it'd be like 5,000 of Fright, Fright Night and then that's it. Like, yeah. That, if you didn't buy exactly. it with that run, that was it. That was their whole marketing strategy yeah. and also they were print to order so you wouldn't find them in stores, right? You'd have to buy them online. So they were, they had an odd model that clearly didn't work. It didn't pay off in it, the end. <laughs> yeah, it clearly did not work but what it means is there's going to be a lot of archival titles that are now going to be popping up all of a sudden, yeah. um, which is great. Um, that made me excited. I'm like, hooray! More stuff in my inbox. I'm happy. Our last movie is what some people will tell you is one of the best movies of 2022. In fact, it's almost uh, certain... No, shut up. Uh, uh, no, uh, no, 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 Avatar. The, the way of no, no. Although I suspect, uh, suspect, are are we not certain that when the Oscar nods come out, we're gonna that Avatar will be and had long since been paid for for a Best Picture nomination, right? Like no question, right? That was like it was on the Golden Globes. You're like, well, yeah, we all know that's a business decision right there, but like, still, it's like it feels like it was on there before they'd even made it. Like, okay, we've got this penciled in for Best Picture there. I'm not going to be that cynical about Top Gun Maverick, but. Because audience, I think it's there because this is and will be on Best Picture list this year because audiences fucking freaked out and loved it. They just loved it so much. They yeah, saw, they, they went to see it again and again. Critics across the board are like ranging from it's terrific to, I mean, it's hard. You can't hate it. <laughs> you know, um, it's basically the beats of the first movie redone with new, with modern 4K and with Tom Cruise. And by the 4K, most of the effects here are just making Tom Cruise look like he's not as old as he is. <laughs> I think there's CG smoothing used entirely around his face, but it's basically the same movie, but with twists in the third act that are a lot of fun. And that's fine. I think it's a better movie than Top Gun is. I will go that far. Because Top Gun is another film that I never 100% got why people were as crazy about as they were, other than yes, the flight sequences are awesome. And the soundtrack is awesome. Um, This does those flight sequences better than I've ever seen in probably any movie ever. Like, these are the best dogfighting scenes 
ever set to film. Like, clearly. And it helps when you're Tom Cruise and are really good friends with the U.S. Armed Forces and get them to go like, oh, this might be good for recruitment. Yes, you can use our actual, like, planes. <laughs> um it looks terrific. It's smooth as as, as silk. Um, other than that, it's largely just a remake of Top Gun. Just everybody's older. Am, yeah. am I off? I you know it's uh, there's well there's no there's no Maverick. This, that sounds weird even coming out of my mouth. There's no Maverick character in Top Gun. So there's a Maverick character in Top Gun Maverick that's played by Miles Teller. <laughs> yeah. So let, let me let me clarify. There's no older mentor looking at a younger version of himself in the original Top Gun. Right. And in this, that's very much like a big part of the movie is, oh, that kid is me. Right. Like, but that, they're both playing Maverick, really. Yeah. You're like, it's <laughs> like combine their they stories. They should have done the Alien Aliens thing and just call this one Top Guns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I was... Uh, left cold by this movie. Oh, okay. Uh, I realized that, like, a lot of people were like, it's freaking fantastic, amazing. They like, loved it. Incredible, jaw-dropping. I was like, it's fine. I like it okay. I, I feel like the first one, there's a handful of movies to me that are... There's, like... I had an aha moment watching Rocky Four. okay? And there is at least a few huge hits from the 80s that are huge hits because of the audience experience with MTV at the time. There's three movies I can think of specifically that are iconographic, that are basically long-form montage music videos where they don't really have scenes. They're sort of like a song with a montage that goes into another song with a montage that goes into another song. I mean, Rocky Four is Flash the Dance, most endemic. Rocky though. Four, Top Gun are very much post-MTV movies. Yeah. They exist as musical montages with with incredible iconography to accompany them. Mm-hmm. Um, in that sense, it's hard for me to say that Maverick is a, a better movie. Maverick is maybe a stronger narrative, but Top Gun is... Top Gun is iconic. Like... But Top Gun is designed almost to be iconic. But I like, feel like this ab- by its very structure. I feel like this absorbs and eats Top Gun in yeah. that sense, where it's like, yeah, 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 we're just taking all that shit, so you don't even need to have watched Top Gun now. Yeah. This is like Top Gun, but we get storytelling better now. <laughs> yeah, but it, but also MTV's like 30, 40 years in the rearview mirror. Forty yeah. freaking years in the rearview mirror. But like yeah. MTV's so so long ago. That there's no reason why this one would bear the same influence. Yeah, um, but I think that makes it a better movie. Yeah, I I don't know that I agree, but I'm not I'm not a five I'm not a Top Gun as a five star movie person, anyways. And oh no, Maverick just didn't Maverick just didn't do it for me. Like mm. it was okay, I, yeah. it was fine. I thought the flight stuff looked cool, but that was it. I was never like. Whatever ride people went on over the summer, I did not go on it with them because it did not. I I just thought it was okay. Yeah, I see. and to the point that I was honestly like a little bit. You have those ones every now and then where you're like, "Am I nuts? <laughs> or, or is everybody else nuts?" Yeah, and no. This is one where when I watched it, I was like, "This is fine." Even but some I of, can't believe people are losing their. Even shit some of my this. best friends who we usually see eye to eye on this type of stuff with were like, I don't know, man, I fucking loved it. And I was like doing the same thing going, what's, 
wrong with me that I didn't love it. So when it came out on 4K, I was like, yes, I'm going to ask for it. I mean, I liked it seeing it in the theater. I was like, yeah, it's okay. Same as you. I like it. Um, I mean, it was definitely a, a movie theater experience, right? But I'm like, you know what? I got a pretty nice home theater. I'm going to watch it at home uh, and give it another try and see if I'd like get more of what these guys are getting out of it. Uh, I, I probably liked it a little more the second time because um, I had different expectations from it. But even so, I like went from okay to good. You know, mm-hmm. I'm still like, I don't. Like this, it's it's like the sort of thing that they have on at Best Buy to show you how cool their new television sets are, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it's that kind of movie. Like it's yeah, it's really good. Um, I'm don't know if I'll ever watch it again, but like, glad I saw it. Tom Cruise has got a hell of a lot of charisma. No one can deny that, right? Jennifer Connelly is still looks fan fucking fantastic, and she's got a lot of charisma. Hell, she could lead a Top Gun film. You know, she's fantastic. Miles Teller, not so sure about. Still not the world's biggest Miles Teller guy, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. He wouldn't have been the actor I would think of as the, you know, the sort of, like, son figure to Tom Cruise in this movie, right? I mean, yeah. I guess he looks a little bit like Anthony Edwards, sure, but doesn't have the charisma of either one of those actors. So, yeah. I, it's fine. It's fine. 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 Yeah. It's fine. I'm glad you guys Top love it Maverick's as much. Mu- I'm glad you love it as much as you do. I really, I have nothing disdainful to say about your love for it. Although I will say, all right, so we, when I first started working at this movie theater, uh-huh. this was playing and it had already been playing for several weeks. And I was like, what the fuck is Top Gun playing in this art house boutique theater? And like, look, we have to, after COVID, we're like, we had to start getting some big films to mix it up. We can't get rid of it. We've been trying. It was there for like a month after I started and it had already been there for a few weeks because it would just sell out constantly, even in this tiny little art house theater. People would come see it again and again and again, including our scumbag governor and his wife who went to see it several times in our theater. And it was like, ugh, fucking feel dirty. Just fucking Greg Abbott. <laughs> so gross, right? It made me like the movie less because of that. I'm like, <laughs> oh god damn it. <laughs> uh it's not the movie's fault that some scumbags like it. There are some I used to see Alex Jones all the time at the draft house. Uh, he... Like there was a time where every time I went to the draft house, Alex Jones was there. You, uh, one of the things when we were talking about this at the theater, I was like <sighs> I just, you just want to spit in his face, right? You can't. You got to be professional. Uh, and like, you think that's bad. Alex Jones used to come in here all the time and everybody hated him. And the worst part was he was an absolute gentleman who tipped like a hundred percent on every single thing that he got. He was just, just came in, was super sweet, like would like just go out of his way to be really nice to everybody and like throw money at, at the staff. And you're like, yeah, that does make it even worse. <laughs> yeah, to wipe all the blood off of it first. Not true of Greg Abbott and his family. They tip nothing. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. you know. They would come in with security guards and make a huge mess and like big, make a big deal. And yeah, they no gratuity. How dare whatsoever. you want a handout? 
Anyway, so there are some bonus features here, uh, cleared for takeoff, which focuses on the aviation sequences. I mean, they pretty much should have just done one bonus feature that's just featured about the aviation sequences, because that's the best thing about this movie. They're, it's just plain smart. Dude, I see what you did there. I did. That was the whole thing. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I keep saying this director should be hired by um, Disney just to fu- uh, do shoot the Star Wars like flight sequences. Like that's his whole job. You just whenever there's a dogfight, that's your job. This is where you come in. You shoot those scenes because you're really, really good at these. I will say for Kaczynski, it's the first time he's threaded the needle on emotional stakes. Yeah, because I think Tron and Oblivion both. Yeah, they they're swinging a miss on connecting you to the characters in the movie. I like Oblivion a lot more I, than I Tron. I dig it, but 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 I don't have an involvement emotionally. Yeah. I have a I have an audio visual involvement. Yeah. Oh, it's a gorgeous film. <clears throat> yeah. But yeah, you're right. There's breaking new ga- ground filming Top Gun Maverick, uh, a love letter to aviation. Okay. So maybe all the extras are about aviation here. I don't know. Uh, which is, that's more about Tom Cruise being a, a flight junkie. Um, forging the dark star, uh, a, a look at the hypersonic aircraft seem in the film. There's like a stealth aircraft in the beginning of this. It's pretty cool. And then this is only available in the 4K version, not on the Blu-ray version. Master class with Tom Cruise from the Cannes Film Festival, which is a 50 minute extra where he sits and he talks about his whole career. And if you've ever sit, sat with like, watched an interview with Cruise where he was taking it very seriously, he is just as charming and entertaining in those as he is in his films. He is a really engaging personality who I wouldn't be surprised had rehearsed every word of that interview, but he's very good at it. Say what you will about Cruz. He is a real movie star and takes it super, super seriously. And he's good at it. You know, he's really, really good in the interview. So, like, I mean, he has had a fascinating life, if not a complex one. Mm-hmm. You know, at least he didn't rape any teenagers. So, just saying. That we know of. Right. <laughs> just the whole Scientology thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe being a little too excited on Oprah's couch. Yeah, that. well, that's just, that's just, uh, that's just, the, you know, that's just love. That's just romance. <laughs> do you believe it? What Any, that's what anybody it was? would do that to Oprah's couch. I bet you he fired his agent right after that, or his special. Freaking, they agent. fired him. Paramount fired him. Really? Immediately, like within a week of the Oprah thing, Paramount cut all ties with him. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't that big a deal. It was like memeable. That was yeah. about it. It was like okay. Paramount's always been a little yeah weird about its relationships with talent. Anyway, we're at the end of this digital noise. And here's the point where I asked Sir John Golson what the pick of the week is. I think that box set. Yeah. The I Gothic th- Fantastico. Gothic Fantastico yeah. was my pick of the week. That was absolutely mine as um, well. It's something that I could see myself. I don't know that I would watch all of them again. I think that my top two in there, I could see uh, throwing on during the Halloween season or, you know, I used to have like all day, horror movies or show I, I one of my favorite things to do <clears throat> it's been god 10 years was to show black and white horror films that my friends had never heard of and i would just do them like all day hmm. and it was so much fun because it would like like i remember showing eyes without a face uh one time i cheated and i showed lost skeleton of cadaver which is new but it's still black and white right um and then I, I love Eyes Without a Face. For the yeah, record. Eyes Without a Face so is good. so freaking good. Yeah. And um, those were fun to do. And it's like I, I, it, this reminds me of those days. But uh, yeah, these are all these are all really solid. And I can see myself watching a couple of these again. 
or having them as part of my regular Halloween diet. And I didn't really get into the special features. So for me, yeah, it's worth I'm interested going back in the box into. because I, w- I would like to dig more into it. I, 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 don't know I definitely feel like at least two of these might make it into my rotation for like showing <laughs> to other people like that. Because, yeah, there's such a pleasure in going, here's a hidden gem you don't know about. Yeah. I guarantee you. And then turning them on to it. We, we got to do a thing at our theater recently where uh, – on Halloween, they were like, okay, well, we're going to have a, a, like a, a horror movie thing where Chris is going to pick, bring something from home and show it for people as a surprise. And these are all kids, right? With very little experience in yeah. deep dives. So I'm like, what would work best? Lamberto Bava's Demons. Oh, nice. Set in a movie theater. <laughs> you right. know, I'm like, and, it's, and it gets wild quickly. Yeah. It's like one of those, oh, you don't have to worry about attention spans because it doesn't be feel in. like it takes place on Earth. <laughs> yeah. Pe- it's such a weird, yeah. it's such a uniquely weird movie. People for weeks afterwards were thanking me for turning them on to that film. They were like, that's so great. I literally went home and just immediately bought a copy online. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's really good. Second one's not as good, but it's still really good. Yeah. You know, anyway, that's it for Digital Noise. I can sit here and talk about movies. Movies we love with John Golson all day and have before, but he'll be back again soon. Because I, well, maybe not soon because I just gave him a huge, ridiculous stack of the next movies. And we got, and we got Santa Claus coming to town. We got a whole new year starting. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I'll, he's going to do the best he can. Yeah, you can, you can't ask for more than that, especially during award season where even I'm I'm like so far behind on everything I need to watch. Oh my god, <laughs> so far behind. But there, it's it's harder this year. I I am not. Yeah, we'll talk about it offline. I'm yeah. not getting the screeners. I don't know what my deal is. What? Anyways, they're not sending me physical screeners. Oh. I'm just now, there are some great screening rooms, like online screening rooms. And I, I, I'll, we'll talk so about it. We'll, we'll talk, talk about, about it. it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting left behind by, uh, technology. I'm sorry. That's we'll okay. try and fix that. Yeah. 